What is the meaning of life? This is a big question that all of us ask in one way or another, and we often come to very different conclusions what the answer to that question is. And some of our conclusions are more optimistic or maybe even more pessimistic than others. Some of us might come to believe that romance is the meaning of life, finding your soulmate, finding that one that you can spend all of your life with. Maybe some of us believe that the meaning of life can be found in wealth, get rich or die trying. Maybe we think the meaning of life can be found in success, having your name up in lights somewhere. Maybe we think the meaning of life can be found in legacy. That way your name lives on even after you die. Maybe the meaning of life is creativity, making some type of original contribution to the world unlike anybody else. Maybe the meaning of life is social justice, fighting for equality or against oppression. Maybe the meaning of life is worshiping God and everything that we say and everything that we do. Or maybe the meaning of life is that there really isn't any meaning to life. But not only do we come to very different conclusions when we all ask this question right now, our conclusions may change over time as we continually revisit that question of what the meaning of life really is. Early in life, an ambitious young person may truly believe that the meaning of life is found in wealth or success, but then later in life, they come to believe something different, that after all this time, it's actually about family or acts of service. And this question that we talk about, the meaning of life, this question will shape so much of what we do in the limited time that we have here. And that's why it's so important that we think about this question. If we believe wealth and success are the meaning of life, then things like romance and things like family will probably get pushed to the back burner. And if we believe that there is no God and hence nothing after we die, then we may find ourselves putting momentary pleasure on the front burner. And as we all know, it's a tragedy to hear someone share that they feel as though they have wasted the time they had on earth, chasing after things that really didn't have any meaning after all. Now, this question about the meaning of life takes center stage in the book of Ecclesiastes. And the answer that Ecclesiastes offers is not from some young person still trying to figure things out. As we read the words of this book, you can picture an older person reflecting back on the life they've lived, everything they've learned along the way. And perhaps Ecclesiastes will help us along as we consider the question ourselves. What is the meaning of life? No matter what stage of life we find ourselves in. And if this question is so incredibly important... It's safe to say that God's people should consider what the Bible has to say. So with that, open up your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. If you're using one of our chair Bibles, this will be located on page 470. And if you don't own a Bible, feel free to take one home with you before you leave today. But before we do any reading, let's pray, and then we'll get started. Father, thank you for this day, for the privilege that we have of gathering together here in this building and singing songs and taking communion and reading your word. 
and that we can do so in relative freedom and relative peace and relative security, uh, something that we take so very much for granted. And God, I know that there are many people in this room right now, and maybe we're wrestling with the question right now about the meaning of life. Maybe we've wrestled with it before, and surely we'll all wrestle with it again at some point in the future. And God, I pray that as we look for the answer to that big question that so many have asked, I pray that we would look to your word for guidance. That we wouldn't just look to our culture that changes that we would look to your never-failing word. God, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for your son, Jesus. And we ask all these things in his name. Amen. Well, every time we start a new sermon series going through an individual book of the Bible, I like to start by asking some simple questions about what it is that we're reading, trying to get the background of the book that we're spending so much time in. So first things first, who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. Well, there is debate about who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, but one of the most important things that we can consider as we read this book is that Ecclesiastes features two different voices. We have two different voices speaking in the same book. The first voice could be called the narrator. We see him in verses 1 through 11 of chapter 1 and verses 8 through 14 of chapter 12. And the narrator's job is to present and reflect on the thoughts of the other voice of Ecclesiastes. You might call that second voice the preacher. Now, if the narrator takes up the first 11 verses of the book and the last seven verses of the book, then the preacher takes up everything else. He is by far the dominant voice in the book of Ecclesiastes. And in your translation, the preacher may also be called the teacher. And if we really wanted to get technical, you could call him the assembler, someone who gathers people together to share his wisdom. Now, one of the questions that comes up about the preacher is, is this Solomon? Is Solomon the preacher? Because people read some of the claims that the preacher makes, and it seems to be pretty obvious that this is Solomon. The preacher says that he was king over Israel in Jerusalem. He says that he was David's son. That matches up pretty well. We also read many of the characteristics of the preacher that seem to match up with Solomon too. But in all likelihood, the preacher is not actually Solomon. In all likelihood, the preacher is presenting a character inspired by Solomon. You could say that the preacher speaks in a way to intentionally make people think of Solomon. It's like he's using Solomon as an example. Okay, so that's who wrote it, but when was it written? Well, there's some debate there, too. It could have been as early as 400 years before Jesus, or maybe even as little as 200 years before Jesus. Where was Ecclesiastes written? Most likely in Jerusalem. And why was it written? Well, to be honest, this question, when you read Ecclesiastes, is more important than who or when or where. What's most important is why. What's most important from Ecclesiastes are the key lessons that it teaches us about God, that it teaches us about ourselves, and that it teaches us about life. 
So with that, open to Ecclesiastes 1, 1 through 11, as we begin reading. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Here we have the narrator speaking. He speaks of the preacher in third person. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things. Nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. As we mentioned earlier, these are the words of the narrator, not the preacher. And here the narrator previews the core of the preacher's message with the phrase, Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Some translations use the word meaningless. All is meaningless. Other translations use the words emptiness or frustration. Now, why would the narrator say something like that? Well, according to the narrator, the preacher says that people are born and then they die, but the earth just keeps on spinning. The sun rises, the sun sets, the wind blows, the waters flow. Man is full of weariness. Man is never satisfied, and things that occur are quickly forgotten. Now, if we really take the narrator's summary of the preacher's message at face value, the narrator doesn't come across as exactly encouraging. Some readers have read the book of Ecclesiastes and tried to find ways to make the preacher's message a little bit more cheerful, a little less pessimistic. But to be honest, their efforts really aren't all that convincing. You can't get around a phrase like vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Now, what would cause the preacher to really feel that way? Why would the preacher come to believe that everything is meaningless, that everything is emptiness, that everything is frustration? Well, maybe the preacher isn't the negative one. Maybe it's the narrator. Maybe he got the preacher's message wrong. Maybe he misinterpreted the preacher's message. Well, let's let the preacher speak for himself. Verse 12. I, the preacher, again, first person, we're switching voices. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. 
I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. This preacher has devoted his life to wisdom. He sought to know madness. He sought to know folly. He sought to understand everything that is done under heaven. And after all that searching, all that knowledge, all that wisdom, he believes that he's the wisest person around. But what does he say in the end? All is vanity. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Now, devoting your life to wisdom, that certainly makes us think of Solomon. In 1 Kings 3, Solomon asks God for wisdom when he becomes king over Israel. He could have asked for anything. He could have asked for a long life. He could have asked for wealth. He could have asked for the defeat of his enemies. But he asks for wisdom. And God grants it to him. We see that wisdom exposed in the famous story in the same chapter, 1 Kings 3. In that story, two prostitutes each have a baby. And one of the babies tragically dies. And both prostitutes claim that the baby left behind, the baby who's still alive, is theirs. They didn't have DNA tests back then. So to resolve the dispute... Solomon proposes cutting the baby in half and splitting him. Seems fair. Seems just, right? Well, the mother refuses this fair but fatal solution out of love for the child. And when Solomon sees the woman who refuses this solution, he knows who the mother really is. And he gives the baby to her. Word spreads after this event People are in awe of Solomon's discernment and Solomon's justice. In fact, word spreads so far about Solomon's wisdom that in 1 Kings 10, the Queen of Sheba comes all the way to Jerusalem just to see if Solomon is really as wise as everyone says he is. And the Queen of Sheba leaves in awe of Solomon. He's even more wise than she imagined. While this certainly makes us think of Solomon, this seeking after wisdom, this seeking after knowledge, the main point, according to the preacher, is this. Wisdom and knowledge, in and of themselves, those things are not enough to convince him that life has any meaning. He comes to the same conclusion. Vanity of vanities. Well, that's a disturbing discovery. But surely the preacher isn't going to give up that easily in his search for meaning, right? I mean, there's got to be something else this world has to offer that will give life significance. Well, let's look in Ecclesiastes 2, starting in verse 1. 
I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the children of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So if wisdom and knowledge don't provide meaning, maybe pleasure will. So the preacher doesn't hold anything back when it comes to every kind of pleasure that you can imagine. He treats himself to wine. He builds houses and vineyards, gardens and parks, trees and pools. He has countless slaves, countless livestock, silver and gold from all over the map, singers and concubines for entertainment. But after all that stuff that he collects, again, he comes to the same conclusion. This also was vanity. He says that trying to find meaning in these forms of pleasure was like trying to chase the wind. Acquiring all types of pleasure, well, that sounds like Solomon too. In 1 Kings 7, we read that Solomon's palace took 13 years to complete. That's a pretty impressive palace. It's safe to assume that a palace like that would have included vineyards and gardens and parks and trees and pools. 1 Kings 4, 1 Kings 10, 1 Kings 11 all tell us of the incredible wealth that Solomon acquired. It pretty well covers almost everything that the preacher just listed. Now, not only do we see Solomon in a chapter like this, maybe we see ourselves in a passage like this. How many of us have searched for meaning in wine, only to find that it comes up empty? How many of us have told ourselves that if only I have a house and a vineyard, and a nicer place to live, if only I can keep up with the Joneses, then my life will have meaning. How many of us have tried and tried to find meaning and financial security and wealth, only to be disappointed? How many of us have searched for meaning in 
various forms of entertainment or maybe even sex, hoping that finally I'll find contentment. And yet we come to the same conclusion as the preacher. This also is vanity. It's like trying to chase after the wind. Now, just like that last time, if this is, in fact, an intentional reminder of Solomon that the preacher is getting at, the result is the same. According to the preacher, earthly pleasure, just like earthly wisdom, does not change the fact that life is meaningless. All is vanity. All is frustration. All is emptiness. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, well, the preacher can't get any more pessimistic than that. Well, there's one more passage that we can read today. Let's start reading in Ecclesiastes 2:14. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. Moving forward in verse 16. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after wind. Earthly wisdom and earthly pleasure did not offer meaning, significance, contentment. But there is one thing that the preacher has come to be pretty confident about, and that's the certainty of death. Now, some might say, you know, that's not depressing. That's just being realistic. But for the preacher, he believes that the fool and the wise will both die in the same manner. And that certainty of life leads him to an even more depressing but not surprising conclusion. We read in verse 18, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow And his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. The unfortunate conclusion that the preacher comes to after he considers the certainty of death is the pointlessness of life. When we die, everything that we worked for will be taken over by someone else who didn't work for it. And for all we know, there's a pretty good chance that they're going to take it and they're going to ruin all of it. 
The last few verses show the utter despair that the preacher has fallen into. Our days are full of sorrow. Our work is a vexation. Our heart never rests. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. All is meaningless. All is emptiness. All is frustration. Now, one certainly can't be blamed for reading passages like these and wondering what in the world could I possibly learn from this? And what value could this possibly have for me? Well, there's a phrase that the preacher has mentioned several different times, nine times to be exact, that we haven't talked about yet. That phrase is under the sun. Perhaps a book like Ecclesiastes, perhaps the words of the preacher, can serve as a warning to us. A warning of what happens when we focus only on what's under the sun. What's only in this life. Our buddy Solomon fell into that trap himself. For all of Solomon's wisdom, for all the pleasure that he experienced... We read in 1 Kings 11 that at the end of his life, he turns away from God. The promising, successful king of God's people dies a lonely idolater. Let this be a warning to us that God's people are called to have a much bigger perspective than what's under the sun. We are called to have an eternal perspective. And if we don't see the things of this life, the things under the sun, through that eternal perspective, it's very easy to see everything as meaningless, like chasing after the wind. May we take the advice of James, who agrees with the preacher that life is indeed but a breath. But James also tells us that the only wisdom And gifts worth having are the ones that come from God himself. And wisdom is, at least according to Jesus, not using this life to acquire knowledge and pleasure. According to Jesus, as strange as it sounds, the wise man is the one who acquires for himself a cross. The wise man is the one who abandons placing all his stock in this life, placing all his stock on things under the sun, only to gain the whole world and then end up losing his soul in eternity. And because Jesus went to the cross, people like you, people like me, sinners like us, can be confident that life is not just about what's under the sun. There is much more to it than that. And because of Christ's cross, because of Christ's shed blood, because of Christ's broken body, we have an eternity to look forward to, not just what's under the sun. His cross gives meaning and purpose from the time that we become a follower of Christ to the time that we die. And it gives us eternal life to continue well after the sun of our lives sets. St. Augustine once wrote that our hearts are restless until we find rest 
and God. The preacher says that at night, his heart is restless. May we find our rest. May we find our meaning. May we find our purpose. Not in the things under the sun that will fade, but in the eternal God who saved us. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to have a bigger perspective. We can get so caught up in things under the sun, things of this life, things that seem so important at the moment, but in the big scheme of things really aren't that important. I pray that we would find meaning, that we would find joy, that we would find contentment in you, because in the big scheme of things, You are the only true source of meaning and contentment and joy and fulfillment. And if we continue looking elsewhere, we'll come to the same conclusion as the preacher. Vanity of vanities. Father, thank you for sending your son to die on the cross for us. Thank you for showing us once and for all that life is not meaningless, and that there is much, much more to look forward to than just the dates on our tombstone. Father, we love you, we praise you, we honor you. Let us look to you to rest our hearts. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you do not yet know Christ as your Lord and your Savior, I pray that you'd make that decision today, that you'd talk to one of our elders. They'll be standing at the sides of the room, happy to answer questions, happy to pray with you, happy to share their own stories of coming to Christ, whatever it is that you might need to talk to them about. And I pray that you would leave here this morning more convinced than ever that life is not meaningless because of the life that Christ offers.